Turn to Matthew 16 and verse 18, if you will. Matthew 16. And in speaking to Simon Peter, Jesus Christ talks about us. He says in verse 18, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the grave, shall not prevail against it. Now we understand that I get frustrated sometimes when I allow myself to be distracted from what a verse is saying by the difficult scripture aspect of it. God didn't put verses in the Bible just so we would think about how to refute their misunderstanding with Protestants and Catholics. He put them in there for us to understand something. And so there are those who confuse Peter being the rock. Somehow the church is just built on Peter. And gratefully in God's church, we don't have that misunderstanding. We recognize there's actually two subtly well, not so subtly, they're spelled differently, but different Greek words there used for Peter and the rock, even though Petra and Petros, they can refer to a small stone or a large rock. We understand that. And so what is this saying? He's saying that he was building the church on himself. He is that rock. The rest of scripture testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ is the rock on which this church is built, and he promises us, the Son of God sent from heaven promises us that that church would endure and the grave would not prevail against it, which means that church exists today. It was this church that was born, in a way, if you will, on this day of Pentecost, almost 2,000 years ago. Now, that said, I don't want us to be distracted by that either. We are not truly born fully into the family of God until the resurrection. So I don't want to go and say, oh, no, Mr. Smith's saying we're born now. We're not born now. We are begotten children of God. But in just terms of the, the commonsensical use of the beginning of something, this church in a very real way began on that day on Pentecost almost 2,000 years ago. When God poured out his Holy Spirit on a relatively small group of believing people compared to the people in the rest of the world. We'll turn also to the end of that book of the Bible, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We'll see that Jesus Christ commissioned that church. That was to begin there on Pentecost. The Pentecost to come for them. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. He tells them, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I don't want to be distracted by this sentiment as well, though there's an increasing likelihood I will at a certain point later in the sermon. 
But when he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, notice the implication is that this commission to make disciples and to teach the world continues to the end of the age. There's those that would say, just as was addressed in the announcements earlier, that somehow that work to do that is done. That's ridiculous. It's a lie of the devil. Otherwise, all of a sudden, he's not talking to the same group of people. That you continues. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He commissioned them and promised to be with them. He wasn't just sending this group of people out into the world to do things. He said he would follow. He would be with them as well. And we see that he was. Let's turn to one more verse here in the introduction. Turn to Acts chapter 17. We'll spend a lot of time in the book of Acts. You know, we've really struggled with the state of Texas to get Jonathan's birth certificate to get him a passport to go to Israel. It's been a challenge. I have to say, I love Texas. I don't mess with Texas. I love Texas. I was reared in Texas, but I'm very disappointed in Texas. They made it incredibly difficult. Uh, They promised it would take no less than 20 to 25 days just to process the birth certificate request. And But if you paid a whole bunch extra after 20 to 25 days, they'd at least mail it really quickly. Well, that was, we're going on maybe two months ago, and I haven't actually received it from Texas yet. But thankfully, I found a third-party service with real human beings, and, and uh, we were able to get it much faster. So the reason I bring that up is not just to complain and hope that someone from Texas watches this sermon one day that works for government and perhaps reforms their system. But in a certain way, to me, the book of Acts is like the birth certificate of the church. Again, not born into the family of God but documenting the beginning of its existence in the world. And we'll spend a good bit of time in the book of Acts today for the most part. But we see that Jesus fulfilled his promise and was with the church. And we see what the church was able to do because of it. A small ragtag group of people, if you will, growing by the day, but growing in a world that was still so much larger full of institutions that were so much more powerful, full of other belief systems with passionate people behind them. And yet, what do we read of this church that had its beginning on this Pentecost almost 2,000 years ago? Acts chapter 17 and verse 5. Speaking of what was going on in this particular circumstance, we read, but the Jews who were not persuaded, that is not persuaded by the things the apostle Paul was saying, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason Talbot. No, not Jason Talbot. Sorry. Uh, it's a different Jason. It was a, you know, a namesake. Attacked the house of Jason. Imagine the entire city being worked up in a frenzy. And then descending upon this one house in this place. And it says they attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. This small group of people, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have printing presses, And yet they had already earned a reputation as being those who turned the world upside down. I don't know about you, 
but I want to turn the world upside down. Which really, in the end, when you look at it, is a matter of helping it see it's already upside down, and we just want to show them what right side up looks like again. I want to turn the world upside down. I know so many of you have talked to you want to turn the world upside down. But here's the question. That church, the church that began on that Pentecost in 31 AD was able to do this. Are we that church? Are all of us here a part of that church that had its humble beginning there in Pentecost of 31 AD? Because a church is actually a people, right? We've, we've learned that. It's one of our basic beliefs here as a part of God's body of people, the body of Christ, is that the church isn't a building, it's not a cathedral, it's a body of people. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we that body of people? Well, right there in the phrase body of people, it's a body of individuals, individual people. If we are to be that church, the church that began on that Pentecost, then we individually need to be the sort of people that fit that kind of mold. Whatever describes those people needs to describe us. If we are to be that church, the continuation of that first century church that had its beginning on Pentecost 31 AD. That's what I'd like to address today in the sermon. I'd like to address that question. I'd like to ask, are we that church? Are we that church of that particular Pentecost? And that's the title of the sermon today is, Are We the Church of That Pentecost? Now we have a booklet on the topic. Where is God's true church today? I highly encourage you read that. It talks about five signs of finding that church today. The name of the church, for instance. There's a, there's a number of different things to look for. The signs, the Sabbath and holy days. Looking for that. But I'd like to address it from a, a, a little different perspective. Because it's easy sometimes to identify an organization and find this is that organization in the world. If I'm looking for that church, I look and I find it here. I find it headquarters in all places, somewhere close to where Billy Graham was headquartered, right? In uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Go figure. Who'd expect that? Uh, I find it here in Charlotte. But it's another thing to ask, am I a part of that body of people? When I look at the characteristics of the people in that time, when I look at the characteristics of the people that were a part of the body of that church... That Pentecost, 31 A.D., am I a part of that body of people? Because I am a part of a body of people, and I contribute to what that body of people is like or what it's not like. So I'd like to look at, we're just going to focus really on three characteristics of those people. Just three characteristics. There are so many more. It's a worthwhile study. Pentecost is a beautiful time of year to go through the book of Acts. To just read what that church was. Because that's us. That's us. I wish you were getting the Living Church News before Pentecost. I apologize. If you'd like to know who to blame, 
Oh, where is he? Is uh, it's me. Uh, just with everything going on, I was I failed to get the Living Church news out before Pentecost. But there's a wonderful article about Pentecost that you need to read. Don't save it for next year. Uh, read it before that. It's by Mr. Roderick McNair. Uh, Roderick McNair. I just messed up his name. Roderick McNair. So it took so long, I kept misspelling his name, and I had to go over and change it over and over and over again. But he's talking about us as a family. And looking back on family letters, so to speak. And it's still worth reading, even though Pentecost will be passed. I hope you will read it. And this is us. I would get excited if I found a letter by my great-great-great-grandfather. And had the chance to read it. Even if it was just one scrap of paper. To see something that was on his mind, perhaps, in just any mundane given day. And here we have a record of our family. We have a chance to compare them to us. To see, am I really falling in line with the family expectations? In what ways can I pat myself on the back in a healthy way? In what ways should I chide myself and need to change? There are so many characteristics, and I won't pretend to be able to cover all of them. I really just want to focus on three. But I do encourage you to study yourself and study this remarkable book that was given to us. So the first point I want to make today about the church of that Pentecost, is that it was a church in one accord. A church in one accord. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 2, we'll see that. And I'll say this is often the place where people think of this phrase the most, at least in my experience. If I asked you to turn to a verse and said, hey, find a verse where it says the church was together with one accord, this would probably be the place where many of you would look. Some of you might go someplace completely different. In Acts chapter 2, right here at the beginning, the way I see this, this is like a prerequisite to receiving the Holy Spirit because they were in this circumstance. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all with one accord in one place. Let me ask you, what if they hadn't have been with one accord in one place? What if they'd been disputing a lot? What if they'd been arguing and bickering? Surely they were individual human beings. Surely they had varying ideas here and there. What if those ideas had grown so large it prevented them from being in one place to receive that gift together? What if personality differences kept them apart? What if one said, I love that guy. I mean, I love him as a brother. I would die for him, but I'm not going to be in a room with him. And just let me know when he steps outside for air and I'll come in. Or I, I do love him as a brother. I will sacrifice for him. I would wash his feet. Just don't ask me to shake his hand. Because I can't forget blank. It wasn't like that, apparently. They were together with one accord in that room. In fact, that phrase is used uh, quite a number of times. We'll read about different things. But I, I want to read from this one particular resource. It was called The Outline of Biblical Usage. It's written by a man named Larry Pierce. And I know credibility to him i have no idea he could be a i don't know used car dealer i really don't know 
if you're a used car dealer, I'm not meant to, I'm not trying to insult you. Uh, I'm just saying that the way he describes this word, uh, this phrase in Greek is actually rather accurate and rather helpful. The Greek word, it's, it's translated in my new King James with three words, with one accord. Uh, but the Greek word is actually homothumadon. Homothumadon. And he explains this word that it generally means with one mind, with one accord, and with one passion. With one mind, with one accord, with one passion. It's used multiple times in the New Testament, in some cases in terrible circumstances, where people are rushing to attack someone. It says they rushed with one accord. They had one thing on their minds, and that was to shut that guy's mouth or, or to do him harm. But generally, it's used more frequently to describe the church. And he writes here in the outline of biblical usage, a unique Greek word used in 10 of its 12 New Testament occurrences in the book of Acts. It helps us understand the uniqueness of the Christian community. Homothumadon is a compound of two words, meaning to rush along and in unison. The image is almost musical. A number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone as the instruments of a great concert under the direction of a concert master. Look further down in Acts chapter 2, and you'll see with one accord in action. What does it look like to be with one accord? In Acts chapter 2, now actually empowered by God's Spirit all the more, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. After reading about 3,000 souls who were baptized, which was actually mentioned yesterday in the sermon, verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which means teaching, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done to the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, before I get into the meaning, I hate to have to do this, but let me make sure I just address one perversion that is extant out there in the world, or at least two. One is the idea that if they had all things in common, well, common means communism. And if you take a look, clearly the first century Christians were a bunch of communists. No, that's not the case. That's not the case. Karl Marx was not amongst those in the first century church. Uh, all these principles, Lenin was not a part of the first century church. They were not communists. It was a common compassion they had for each other. All the more when you realize some of these people had traveled from far off lands to be there for Pentecost. And all of a sudden, you've got people that you consider to be family closer to you than anyone else you've ever known. And don't look forward to going back to Parthia and all of these other countries. And yet you only brought enough to stay for a certain amount of time. They had a common compassion for each other. They were not communists. There's so many people that try to read their political ideologies into the Bible. And those people simply need to shut up. 
and let the Bible inform them about the value or terrible values uh, present in their political ideology. Let the Bible instruct you. Stop trying to put a veneer on here about what it's supposed, your values supposedly being in there. But also there's another idea out there is that it means all the people just sold literally everything they had. You know, if they've got a mortgage, they've got whatever it is and somehow gave it to the church using like verses later in Acts chapter four. So that could be used for the work or whatever the case is. And that's just not the case. It's a perversion. It's something that has been constructed by some to milk Christians of everything they have to serve a selfish, prideful ideology. What this is, is simply how it comes across. It was a body of people who had compassion for each other. If someone was in need, then there was someone who wanted to give to that person in need. Look at, read the descriptions. It talks about just breaking bread together, spending every day together. There was a time, I know, when I began attending in the 80s. And I, I appreciate my, my mother-in-law and her family before she was my, my mother-in-law and such. Before they realized what a great son-in-law I would make one day. I appreciate what they represented because I, I went to services as, as a new person and was so excited about being Amongst people who believed all the things that I've been reading about, who believed all the things that I'd heard this old Armstrong fella talk about on the television program, who actually believed all the things that I was seeing in my Bible for the first time. But what made a difference for me, what really set me over the edge was having the opportunity to be among people who lived those things. When I'm busy seeing them and they're not in their finest suits and their finest clothes and behaving so well amongst everyone else, but I'm breaking bread with them in their home on a Sunday morning or a Friday night ahead of time or because we don't want to leave a Sunday night, sometimes an early Monday morning trying to get to my exam, you know, in college real fast because I just didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave that fellowship because I was amongst people who lived with one accord and breaking bread with them and praying with them was a privilege, was a privilege that I couldn't fathom. I was finally being able to partake in. I couldn't have imagined this. And that was just a small taste of what this was, what it's like to be amongst people who have a compassion for each other. It's one thing to sit down at a potluck meal or a covered dish meal with someone. It's another thing to be washing the dishes with them later. And what you see pictured here, that church that began on Pentecost 31 AD longed to spend time with each other, longed to be with those of like mind, those who shared a common mind, a common accord and a common passion. If you turn to Acts chapter 4, for me just a page over, we'll see another description that reflects this aspect of that church that began on that Pentecost. Acts chapter 4. And verse 32. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, and one soul. 
Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. That's where that phrase can be misused. You know, if you look in the millennium, it says that a man will sit under his fig tree. And it speaks of his vine. But it also speaks of a different spirit in that world where if I have something, it's there to give. You know, what I saw with my future in-laws family was that sense that, you know what, if we have enough food for six, we have enough food for seven. And if we have enough food for seven, we have enough food for eight. And just trusting that God would honor those decisions. And yes, there was a selling of things and distributing it to the apostles to distribute. But if you actually take a look at that in verse 35, it says, what did they do? They laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. It was not to power an apostle's vanity project, as some have abused in this day and age, daring to call themselves the church of God. It was because these people together, and I say apostles, I should have put air quotes around that because the one who, at least one, at least one who calls himself that this day and age is is not one. But there are people with need. And if you've got a body of 3,000, 5,000 people, you don't know what all the need is. You don't know where that need is. But you know there are some who do. And I know in the ministry, anyone here who's who's been out in the field has probably experienced that, where I've had a member come to me with an envelope before the feast. And they say, look, I don't know if there's anyone in the congregation that needs help going to the feast, and I don't need to know. If there's no one, please send this into headquarters so they can use that. But if you do know of someone, please, I don't need to know who it is. They don't need to know who I am, but please, please share. Please help someone get to the feast. It means a lot. As a feast coordinator, I won't give names. I gotta admit, I don't even know the person's name. Uh, there's so many people at the feast, I can't remember every name. But I remember one particularly older fella who come to me with an envelope and said, "Look, every year I come with just more than I can do with, and I've sent some into headquarters and such. I, you know, is there anyone here who needs anything? Just please take this and use it." And he's, and he's off, and he's gone. Like a, I said, like a ghost. We don't believe in ghosts, but still, whoosh, you know, he's gone. And I opened the envelope, and it was seven thousand dollars. $7,000. He didn't make sure there was a name on a check or something that he would be able to take some kind of credit. Didn't make sure that we announced, well, by the way, thank you for so-and-so for, for this. Just wanted to ensure that if there was anyone at the feast who needed to be taken care of, they would be taken care of. That's this spirit. It's having one accord as we'll see later, it, it does impact and is impacted by other things. And we don't have the time to go into them, but it's not just care and compassion. It's not just that. If you read back in Acts chapter 2, you talk about how the apostles' teaching was a part of that. We cannot be with one accord if we're all disputing about the things that are taught. It's impossible. It's just not possible. People will say... You know, look, this fellow, I know he's going around talking about all these crazy things here and there. Uh, you know, I know he's got all these ideas, but how cruel is it to ask him to not, no longer attend? And I will say to you, 
It's merciful, not only to that person in many circumstances, but merciful to the body of Christ here, such that a rot does not spread. You cannot be with one accord with a multitude of various teachings. It's not possible. And that is a part of that unity of mind. It's important to have a unified ministry. You can't have a congregation here that teaches one thing and a congregation there that teaches one thing. You can't afford to go to some place in Canada or South America and want to attend with God's people and find out they believe completely different things. That's not being of one accord. It's not being of one mind. Some people want to imagine some fantasy land that everybody just has a label on them that says Church of God on it, and they come together as if what you teach does not matter. It's lunacy. It's absolute lunacy. It doesn't match common sense, and it doesn't match the picture of that church that began on Pentecost 31 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. There was sharing, there was fellowship, there was breaking of bread together, there was time spent together. It's harder to do that now, isn't it? It is. Maybe for some of you it's not. Maybe you have a lot of brethren really close to you all the time, and that's wonderful. And we're really blessed here in Charlotte to have so many in a relatively concentrated space. That's not the way it is so many places. I felt bad as a minister, and I... One of my many mistakes is, especially my first congregational area, if anyone ever sees this in the Missouri area, this was, this was dumb. Uh, I've been given good advice about where to find a house. You know, you need to find a place to live. And both Dr. Meredith and Dr. Winnell, I think both of them at that time, advised me. In fact, I remember we were here in Charlotte. I was visiting and we were in a booth at the place that used to sell kind of Greek food, I think it was. We were in a booth and they both said... Don't try to pick a, a home in the middle of your area. You know, you need to just pick a congregation where you're close to people. You know, you never know where you're going to be sent. So in all my wisdom, of course, what did I do? I picked a, a right in the middle where I could. I had three congregations, so I tried to pick right in the middle. I admit I got out the latitude and longitude and actually did, a, you know, ran, did some equations and actually found the closest I could in the middle. Uh, it's fun. Who wouldn't want to do that, right? So I did that. I actually took all the brethren and I calculated all their latitude and longitude and, you know, that's... Anyway, moving on, so I found that home, and we, and we lived about there. And thought, well, I know they say that, but, you know, I don't really mind. And it was actually a terrible, terrible, terrible decision. We were essentially equally far from everyone and close to no one. So everyone was a certain distance from us, and I, and I would feel guilty about inviting someone over for lunch or, or dinner or something. Because it would be a drive for them. And I would think, well, so often the minister asks you to come over. It's like, oh, well, yes, sir. Then later on, well, honey, I didn't want to tell him it's two hours or anything. I didn't, I didn't, you know, as a minister, you know, we really need to go. Who knows? We could be in trouble or, you know, or who knows, right? And I I was new and you're dumb and you're making all sorts of mistakes. And, you know, Mr. Strain can laugh at me later, all that experience. But, you know, you're trying your best and you make these dumb decisions and I, and I made my share. But really, in general, it is it is more difficult for us. But I hope we're not making the mistake I did as a minister, and not giving the other person the opportunity to say, you know, that's kind of far. Why don't we meet in the middle? I know you tell you what, I can't drive that long a distance. But I've been wanting to have you over and have been too embarrassed to ask, why don't you all come over? 
and, uh, and let me make some lasagna or something. If we're going to be that church that was founded on Pentecost 31 AD, we've got to capture some of that. We've got to not rest on our laurels and just assume we're already doing it. They were of one mind and one heart. One of the most amazing descriptions in Scripture of a group of people right there in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. The multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. And when you're of one heart, one soul, you want to have dinner together. When you go to the movie, you want to see the movie with somebody else. Even if you're sitting in silence for two hours watching Godzilla, you know, and Rodan or someone duke it out because those are the people you want to talk with about it afterwards. You want to spend those time with people. When you get together for a volleyball game, who do you want to play with? You want to play with God's people because those people share something more important than volleyball. And having done just goofy old volleyball with them means more to you than having done it with someone else. We need to be willing to examine ourselves as individuals and seek, if necessary, to revive that kind of spirit. What does it take for us to become more uh, like this description and be with one accord? Okay, that was one characteristic I want to focus on today. The second is this one. This is the second, this is the one I was afraid would consume the whole sermon. So if I do go over on this one, let's all pretend there were just two things I wanted to cover today. We'll pretend there were two things, but this is one I was afraid would consume the rest of the time. But this this is the time to talk about it. That church, that church that was founded on that Pentecost, 31 AD, had a divine mission to take a divine message to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth. That church founded on that Pentecost, 31 AD, had a divine mission, literally a divine mission. What is it? Uh, the old movie. I. I've not had the best past. I did not. I was not born in the church. I've seen so many things I shouldn't have seen. And among them was a movie some of you might remember with uh, said, uh, Jim Belushi and uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd uh, called The Blues Brothers. And in that, you got these two guys wearing their, their dark glass sunglasses and they look like they're in the mafia, but they're not. They're blues singers. And uh, they're always telling people because they're trying to save a, a church. It's a Catholic church. They, they should have let it close. But they were trying to save this church. And they go around telling everyone, we're on a mission from God. You know, they just say that, you know, to everyone. They're on a mission from God. And just seeing these two characters say something like that is part of the part of the ludicrousness of it. I just remember Carrie Fisher, I think, was in the movie. And all I remembered was she was Princess Leia. So that's, uh, that, was, that was a long time ago. I was, I was kind of young. But the fact is, there is a real God, and he actually has given human beings a mission. And it was that people on Pentecost 31 AD. The divine majesty said, go. This is it. It starts now. I said to wait till now. The waiting is done. Do this. This is your mission. Go to the whole world. Don't hold back. We see that from the very beginning. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Let's look at the first thing that happened on that day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. 
and verse 1. Please do not go rent that movie, by the way. Just because something's mentioned from the lectern, it doesn't mean go, go, go rent it. I can't remember the rest of the movie, and it could have horrors in it as far as I know. I, I do not know. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Again, we read this earlier. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, witness the beginning of the church. Verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Can you think of something like that happening in here? This sound like a tornado in the room, and all of a sudden there's divided tongues of fire everywhere around us. And you see them, which would have been strange enough, but you see them moving around the room and descending upon everyone. And as you see them on everyone's head, you realize Well, am I the only person in the room without one? Or does that mean I've got one too? What's going on? What really is going on? Well, they've been told to wait for this. And this is what was happening. It says in verse 4, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. That means other languages. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. It was so loud. It wasn't just heard in the room. There were people walking by. There were people around the building that heard a noise in this building. And so it gathered everyone. You'll see a consistent pattern. If you look through Acts where God does a miracle, not just because he's showing compassion on the person, but because it brings a crowd To hear a message that would have been authenticated by the miracle. We'll see another example in a moment. It says in verse 7, Then they were were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Then how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others said, well, they're, they're full of new wine. It's like a bunch of drunks have come out. You know, the guy's talking this language and that language and the rest. It's, it's just, maybe they're just a bunch of drunks. They're trying to come up with some kind of physical explanation for something that can truly only be explained supernaturally. Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And heed my words. And then he proceeds to deliver this first sermon of the church founded there on that day in Pentecost. Now here's what I want to highlight. What was the very first act of the church of God? The moment, literally the moment it came into existence. It was to begin doing the work. And what is the very 
first gift. There's so many gifts in the Bible, right? Not just tongues. There's gifts of healing. There's all these spiritual gifts that we long to see manifested among us. But what was the very first one? The very first one. It's easy to just say, well, speaking in tongues. But what it was, was the ability to do that work. The church is born in a way, again, not born in the family of God, born in terms of existence. The church comes into existence and with its first breath, it preaches the gospel and is empowered by its father to preach that gospel to the entire world. You cannot separate the church from the work to the world. Too many today try and the devil is working in such people to do so. In Acts chapter 3, we see another example in verse 1. I just want to look at a few examples and see that this was God's modus operandi. And I want us to reflect on the church's attitude in such things. Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Notice why the gifts are given. It's easy. Dr. Meredith encouraged us so frequently, and I hope we haven't forgotten that he said this. I hope we haven't forgotten Dr. Meredith's strong urgings to pray that God would manifest gifts in the church. Spiritual, miraculous gifts. You know, Mr. Uh, DeSimone and I, last night, were, were on his couch and it kind of heads back and you're full of Kadoba. So, you know, you're, you're having visions, so to speak. You know, anyway, you're, you're there and you're on the couch and we're just excited about the things we're trying to do with the work and with what we're writing and with the websites and the things we're doing and, and social media. And we're there and we're thinking of all this because we want it all to succeed. We're excited about the gains that are happening in YouTube videos where he's tweaking things that haven't been done. We're thinking about, you know, what we can write and do, things that are different. But that said, if any one of us, if, 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 if Mr. McNair, if, 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 if uh, uh, Mr. Strain, if, if someone walked into a children's hospital and walked out and every child in the cancer ward were healed, we could put the most boring video in the world on YouTube and the hits would go through the roof. People would want to know who these people are. We pray for these works, but what I want to highlight is why. Because the first century church prayed for them. The church that was founded on Pentecost prayed for gifts. But why? What is the purpose of the gifts. We see an example in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now understand the circumstance. This is a man who's an adult, and he has been lame since birth. No human being has ever laid eyes on this man where he has been free to walk, where he has had working legs, where he's been even to, able to go a few feet on his own power. And it specifies they had laid them there daily, every single day for how long? If you were a temple goer and the society was there such that pretty much everybody, people were going to temple for various reasons, you'd have seen him at that gate. If you'd have gone one day on one single trip, you'd have seen this man laying there begging for alms, asking for mercy on his crippled stature. His inability to walk and to make a living for himself. He would have been remarkably well known. 
So what does it say? This man, upon seeing, verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. They didn't look any different from anybody else. Peter wasn't wearing a pointy hat, you know, and carrying a special golden staff of some sort and white robes flowing in the wind. They looked like everyone else. Here are some people that perhaps he could beg of just as he did every day to everyone who went by. Verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up stood and walked. This is a man who's never walked in his life. Maybe he didn't do it very well at first. You know, we don't really know. But he said leaping up. He had strength and it says that he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew it was he. It was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. You know, if he had just been running around at random in some kind of way, the people wouldn't have come to Peter and John. But what was the point? Why did God intervene in this particular moment? Because in healing this man who's just jumping around and so excited and thrilled and singing and praising God, and these are the people he's coming, maybe he's hugging them, embracing them, grabbing them, raising their arms up, dancing a little jig next to them of some sort. And where does everybody come? Comes to the people God had appointed To deliver a message that day. A miracle which brings the people's attention. And enables them to do the work. In that place. Validating what they were saying. You know it's interesting. Peter explicitly says. Silver and gold I do not have. That's not the point. Of the church that was founded. On Pentecost 31 AD. Don't get me wrong. We should be compassionate. Just as Jesus Christ said, when you fast, because he assumes his people will fast, Jesus Christ also says elsewhere in the Gospels, when you give alms. The language is the same. Jesus Christ assumes his people will be a generous people and will be merciful toward others. But that said, that is not the purpose of the church is to dish out silver and gold. And as Dr. Meredith would say, you could pour all the silver and gold in the world into some areas of the world, and after consuming it because of their terrible circumstances or their horrible governments, they would simply need more. He said, what I do have to give you is this divine message and this gift of healing. And think about that. Who else on earth could have given that man that? The fact is, there is one thing this world needs, and we are the only people who have that. If we do not give it to them, who else is going to? Who else could have come to that man 
and said, rise up and walk. And who else could have walked with him into the temple and delivered that message? The church needs to be about doing the thing that it is the only group of people that can do it. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 4. Well, actually, right here, they're very close. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, as they spoke, because this stirs a ruckus, right? Because what are they going in? They're going and saying, hey, we preach this gospel. And by the way, the fellow that got crucified earlier, the, all the leaders here uh, running the temple, they were essentially complicit in his death. That guy, that guy that they had killed, that guy they said was a heretic, you know, that guy, well, yeah, he's, he's actually the Messiah. It's by his power... They're trying to paint him as a dirty criminal, a rabble rouser that the Romans crucified like a piece of scum. You know what? It's by his power this man walks. So that got some attention. So they pulled these guys in, pulled in Peter and John and had to talk with them. So chapter 4 and verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, not to ordain them. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they locked them up. There were no Miranda rights necessarily back then. They just said, all right, here you go. They're in a jail cell. So that's what their trouble has earned for them. They have done a miracle rarely seen on the earth in any day and age. And the result is they get to spend the night in prison where there was no cable. Uh, I can't imagine there was a four-star meal. Perhaps Internet access. Uh, no, not even Internet access. So there they were in jail. That's what they're getting for their trouble. Let's just kind of jump down. Because they then bring them out and they, they ask them, what are you doing this for? What are you doing? Don't do this. So let's just jump down to verse 18. Well, we can get the context here in verse 17. They don't want this idea spreading amongst the people. So it says in verse 17, but so that it spreads no further amongst the people, let us severely threaten them, these guys, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Oh, yeah, here, 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 home for home. So that's what they decide to do. Verse 18. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, it's we live in a day and age where it's easy to imagine a government with no bite. Because our Comedians every night on the late night talk shows are ridiculing members of our government, ridiculing institutions of government with impunity, with impunity. You know, it's fascinating. I saw once, I don't watch the series, I don't know a lot about it, but I have heard about The Handmaid's Tale and, and, and people talking about this, this futuristic dystopia of oppression on females. And so people will go to to protest anti-abortion legislation dressed in these red robes and white hoods representing these women in a future dystopia that are oppressed and just forced to breed and these terrible things. And they'll do interviews with some of these protesters and they'll say, it's just like that now. It's just like The Handmaiden's Tale. You're literally being interviewed on a major news network and allowed to say whatever dumb thing you want to say. And you're trying to tell me we're living in a dystopia uh, where you're forced at gunpoint to do terrible things you don't want to do. You know, perspective, anyone? There's a back order, apparently, for some individuals. That's not the land we live in. She can say those things freely. The men that criticize those things can say such still freely. And we tend to not realize that was not the government of the first century. 
right? That was not the government of the first century. Someone making such a protest would have been hauled off afterwards. The men to which the apostles were now having to, fa- having to, to give account were men that held their life in their hands. Were men that at a command could do terrible things. So understand the reality they lived in at the time. So when they say that they command you not to speak in this name, it was as if there were really no higher authority on earth with the ability to say so. And so we see in verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, well, it does seem perhaps that the door is closing for it's truly difficult to do the work in this day and age. And so perhaps at a time when we have greater budgets, uh, perhaps at a time when we can truly afford it and are safe, we'll seek to do the work then. Oh, wait, my Bible doesn't say that. I'm sorry. Uh, Does your Bible say that? I hope not. If so, let's have a book burning afterwards and take care of that because that would mean the Bible you possess is a piece of garbage, uh, perhaps purchased from apostasy or us. I don't know. That's not what this says. That's not how they answered him. Verse 19, what it really says in God's inspired word, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That is a statement of absolute commitment. It's not even we will not. It's not even we refuse to stop. It is we cannot. We cannot but speak the things that we have seen and that we have heard. It is the language of no other choice. It's the language that says no matter what choices you're about to make, no matter what words you're about to say, And no matter what guards or security personnel or weapons you're about to bring upon us, we cannot do anything else. So it says in verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they'd all glorified God for what had been done. It's really hard to punish people when there's a formerly crippled man running around outside and all the people are praising God for what they saw John and Peter be a part of. So what was the first century church's response? Again, we see a devotion to the work. The work must be done. There are no options. There are no options. The work to the world must be done. So when they come back to the congregation, when they come back to all of us, say, assembled here, what was the church's response? Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God. Here's that phrase, with one accord, with a unified passion, with a unified focus, rushing forward in the same direction for the same purpose. So they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, middle of verse 24, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before 
to be done. Now, before we read another word, I hope you'll all remember Mr. Rod McNair's, at least in my opinion, fantastic sermon of a few weeks ago. I think it's online now. I think, it, I think it's been distributed online where it, about praying and how to pray and taking a look at what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer as an example, as we often do. But I really benefited from his approach to that. And he talked about how at the beginning of that prayer, it's so helpful to orient your mind on who God is. And just who it is to whom you are speaking. And what he's capable of. And what his relationship is to you. Before you utter a single request to remind yourself that this is the God of all power who loves you. Who manages the affairs of nations and drives the course of history in all the directions that he should desire it to go. And to put that perspective. And if you look, here we are pretty deep into their prayer. They haven't gotten there yet. They haven't, sorry, they haven't gotten to making the requests known yet. They've essentially... Maybe come forward in time, taking Mr. Monaire's advice and gone backward in time. Or understanding that principle, they start off with a perspective that recognize they are addressing the regent of the universe. In whose hands no task is too difficult. But then, what do they do? What is their request? I can, I can sincerely say what my natural request would be. Please... Protect us, you know, protect us from this, right? You know, please keep us safe. You know, the, the guards and the guns and whatever, you know, they're coming after us. And no doubt that was surely a part of their prayer in different times and different places. But in this instance, as the news comes, what do they do? It says, verse 29, we get to the request. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants. Please note, it's not safety. Though, yes, they long to be safe. Please grant to your servants, please note, it's not security. It's not to be hidden. It says, no, please grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. The church that was founded on Pentecost 31 AD is a church whose heart was in the work. It was surrounded by the work to the point that you can't even understand that church's choices and that church's desires and that church's passions unless you understand the work. Unless you understand the mission that wrapped them up and sealed them so whole through the power of God's Spirit and drove them forward day after day, choice by choice and action by action. In the face of all these threats, what do they request? Make us that much more bold to do this work. Recognizing the signs we ask for, the gifts that we ask for have a purpose. And it's not just for our comfort, though I do love to be comfortable. It's not just for our healing, though I do love to be healthy and don't deserve the health I have. It's for the sake of the work and what this church was commissioned to do in the world. And what is God's response to that attitude? Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They were granted that request. You know, we see another example. I don't want to dwell on these examples, but this is how I, I knew this. This could be a, a real challenge for us to get out of this patch, but this is so important to understand. This was that church. If we want to be that church from Pentecost 31 AD, this is it. This is that church. Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. Guess what? The apostles get in trouble again. 
And let me do say, let me highlight for there are those here and there and just amongst us, even myself sometimes, it's easy to do, who get caught up in diversions. Notice what they're getting in trouble for. It's not the political controversies of the day. And there were many. It's not the disputes with Herod or the Roman government. If we are to get in trouble today, Facebook or personally, I pray it is not over things like the American Second Amendment or what some political party is doing or saying or some regulations about health care or some debates about how to tax corporations. Let the dead argue over those things. We have a living message that none of them are able to carry. And yet we've been commissioned to. We should be ashamed if we get in trouble for this world's disputes and this world's answers. I'm not trying to dictate answers for us or the direction we lean. I pick the Second Amendment. I'm pretty sympathetic to some of those people who, who see the law and see this and, and they recognize hypocrisy on the other side. At the same time, they don't always recognize hypocrisy on their side. All I know is God doesn't plan on instituting the Second Amendment in the kingdom of God. And all I know is he's asked me to talk about something else. And he's asked you to talk about something else. Surely there's something more profitable we can spend our time on social media discussing. In Acts chapter 5, I do have to qualify that. I think I did a post about Godzilla recently. So there are, there are things, you know, I want to make sure, you know, I was like, what a hypocrite. I guess Godzilla is more important than those things. So anyway, just, just so you know, it's, it's okay to live your life, but we do have to be careful and not get involved in this world's passions because this world's passions don't correspond to God's passions. And to get so caught up in these things is such a trap the devil lays for us. And we see this church that began on Pentecost 31 AD didn't fall into that trap. Verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. It says, Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, a miracle, right? You're worried. Maybe we're going to be executed. We're going to be beaten. What's going to happen? It says, at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Well, great. Maybe he's taking us to safety. Maybe he's taking us back home because, you know, there were wives and there were loved ones who were worried and who were concerned. Verse 20, what does the angel say? Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So in other words, the thing you just got in trouble for, you're being threatened for, yeah, go do more of that. And the place where it's easiest to find you, go stand there. So verse 21, and when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning. They did not hesitate and they taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But... When the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. When we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. 
What is going on? So verse 25. So one came and told them saying, look, I can only imagine the incredulity on this person's face. Because if anything, you're thinking, oh, they're probably crawling through the tunnels. Maybe they're getting away. It says, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Verse 26. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. For they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. They recognize there is something miraculous afoot. And so it was very different this time. Oh, well, hello, uh, good gentlemen. Oh, we see, we see you're preaching again today. Well, that's nice. The, uh, you know, the high priest would, would like a word, actually. Would you, you know, think you can, think you can come by? We, we sure would appreciate that. So they do. But once they get there, it is a different story. Behind closed doors. When they're not worried about the crowd, it gets very different. Verse 28. And it says, they said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Well, what results? They counsel, Gamaliel suggests, look, we probably shouldn't kill these guys. You know, God works things, right? If it's really not of God, it'll go away. If it is of God, we don't want to risk fighting against God. There was one rational noise in the council. And so upon listening to him, they decide to heed his advice. Verse 40, and they agreed with him. And when he had called for the apostles and beaten them, They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Here they were miraculously free, miraculously freed, freed from their bondage, freed from danger, it seemed. But to do what? To go back to preach and to go back to be beaten. But regardless, they did not cease. I don't want to get too negative today. It's, it's It's a high day. It's a beautiful day to celebrate all the right things. But there are those among there, among, there are those in the world and people that bear the name Church of God here and there that would steal away lambs from the flock trying to convince them that this is no longer a time to do the work. That somehow now it's, it's too hard. Somehow now God hasn't made the same doors open like they were in the 80s. It's now it's a time to focus inward, to focus on the bride and for us to prepare ourselves. And I assure you, those are words of Satan, the devil at the very best, at the very best. They're spoken by people that are deceived and have allowed themselves to be deceived in saying such things. Well, I guess God's closed the doors. God's just not calling anybody anymore. The church founded on Pentecost, 31 AD. I can only imagine the conversations. Well, they're not burning us at a stake yet. So it looks like the door is still wide open. It is, 
is a shameful thing to bear the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost and not be willing to do the will of the one who sacrificed so much to make that happen. And to twist these words and disguise that will and make it seem like something else. And shame on those who do so. Shame on them. Because the church that came into existence at 31 AD on that Pentecost, its first breath, its very first breath was preaching the word. And preaching the gospel. And preaching the message. And for many of them who have gone before us, their last word was still preaching that message. We shame their memories. And we shame what Jesus Christ seeks to do in his body. By saying the kind of garbage that communicates a message that the work is just done. The work is just done. You cannot separate the church from the work. Even in the worst circumstances. Let's just turn to Acts chapter 26. We'll look at two more verses in this part. Acts chapter 26. It's one of my favorites. The Apostle Paul. And Paul's arrested. Paul's in trouble. Things aren't looking good. Got a lot of accusers. They want to do bad things to Paul. Uh, they, don't, they don't want Paul going around saying all this nonsense. So Paul has a chance to defend himself against, frankly, a fairly sympathetic jury, if you will. The judges in this case are kind of looking to throw Paul a bone, to do a favor for the guy. They can see a set-up job when it's happening. They've been around long enough, King Agrippa and Festus and such. They know when something's just been kind of run up. They recognize a kangaroo court when they see it. They recognize false charges. So here's Paul's chance to get off free, go do something else. And the man will not shut up about the gospel. Acts chapter 26. So here he is. He's, he's concluding this presentation of the truth to people. He's going for the brass ring. There's King Agrippa. In the room. I remember thinking once I did a, a TWP in Omaha, Nebraska. And a part of me thought, okay, God. I did literally pray about this. I know it sounds dumb. But I thought, man, if Warren Buffett shows up, I could fund the work for years, you know, for years. And I admit, if I saw old Mr. Buffett in the crowd, I might have had a special attention there when it comes to what to do with money and all the rest. I, I, I freely admit I didn't think he was, but still, you know, you never know. Well, here he's got King Agrippa. Can you imagine, right, what he would have done? I mean, just imagine if one of you, one of you, any of us, were planted in front of uh, President Trump. What would we say? I hope it wouldn't be to slap on a red hat and just slap him on the back and say, good job, buddy. I hope it would be this. I hope it would be this. Because if you end up in a circumstance like that, it's because God has placed you in that circumstance. So he was in this circumstance with King Agrippa here in Acts chapter 26. So we see in verse 24, this was the worst defense ever. Uh, essentially, he's looking like the zealot, passionate individual the Jews are sort of accusing him of being. And so verse 24, it says, Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. 
But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. So verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. It's like everything that I know that I'm begging you to understand. Agrippa, you have no idea. I do wish you were like me, he said. And know what I've been given. And know what's being offered to you as well. Why did Paul do that? The last verse we'll look at in this section before the third one, which is a wrap-up section. 1 Corinthians. We'll jump out of Acts and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians in chapter 9 as Paul is talking about the gospel. And you will see language that echoes the apostles Peter and John. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says in verse 16, the Apostle Paul in his own words, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It's like saying, you know, to one of your teenagers, oh, well, good job eating dinner. I was really the way you chewed food and. What is it? It's what they do. They're teenagers. They eat constantly, right? At least I know some do. Uh, I know, let's just say Smith boys do. I know Smith boys do. So it's like, it's like, wow, you know the way that you were taking air in and out of your lungs today? I wish I knew how to do that. No, we do because it's a necessity. It's like, wow, I really appreciate the way you kept your eyes moistened all day long by constantly, you know, closing your eyelids and making sure they didn't dry out. That's fantastic. No, these are things we do. They're not conscious things we do. We do them out of necessity because our life ends if we don't do them. We have parts of our brain devoted to just doing some of these things to the point we don't even have to think about them. Paul says when it comes to preaching the gospel to the world, because I can't boast. I can't boast about that because woe is me if I don't. I preach of necessity. As Peter said earlier, I cannot but speak of the things I know. And the things that I've seen and what I've experienced. The church founded on that day of Pentecost saw preaching the message to the whole world as a necessity. And if we're going to be that church, we have to see it that way too. And this is where we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up with this point, this third point. Because I want to make sure it's very easy to think of, say, those of us on the telecast. Those of us working on our websites and our videos and such and thinking of that. But a third thing I'll highlight is that the church... On that day of Pentecost that was founded at that time was a church of courage. And they recognized the burden is on all of us. That church was a church, a whole body of people, individually. There was a church of courage. Don't get me wrong. If you're praying that we don't get thrown in jail somewhere, thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, but keep in mind, we might be in there together, right? Uh, you, you know, you and us both. It's It's possible. 
Now, they weren't always courageous. We know after Jesus Christ was crucified, that moment they hid. You can read in John 20, it says, for fear of the Jews, they hid in their room and they closed the doors. But then you see all of these acts, right? All these things they did. But again, it wasn't actually just the leadership. Turn to Acts chapter 8. And we'll just briefly mention this third characteristic. And I'll give one historical parallel. Acts chapter 8. It doesn't mean necessarily making your own YouTube channel and doing your own preaching. It doesn't necessarily mean any of those things. And yet at the same time, has God ever dropped something in your lap? Where you had what seemed like a truly logical opportunity to say something, but were a little concerned that you might come across as a nut job? I know at work I had opportunities in my cubicle. I lived La Vida Dilbert there for, for quite some time in my job before being in the ministry. And you get known as the religious guy, right? Or you get known as the religious lady and people will have questions. And I was always excited by those moments because on one hand, yeah, I didn't want to be the guy all of a sudden nobody talked to because he was a weird religious zealot. At the same time, I felt like if I don't give an answer for the hope that lies within me at this moment who else is going to say this thing right now someone's literally asking me about where the british and american people come from how can i not say you know something someone's literally asking me why do you why do you why are you gone on saturday why couldn't you come to our oh i had a thing to do that moment was there and so we see in Acts chapter 8, it involved everybody the apostle paul was not always the apostle paul right he was one saul and Acts 9 later describes him as breathing threats. This is someone who is breathing threats. He hated the church with a passion. Not because he was evil necessarily, but he believed there was a true faith. And all of these people were heretics. And they were corrupting it. And they were corrupting men, women, and children. And he had a passion for his persecution. And you make examples of people with that. And in Acts chapter 8, it begins right after they had made an example of Stephen. And stoned him to death. Preaching the gospel to the crowd, he was killed to death by the crushing blow of stone after stone after stone. It was not designed to be a merciful death. We can go into that about the Old Testament and talk about that another time. But as he was crushed to death, just piece by piece, he asked God to forgive the people there. So that was the last thing they had seen, and it all expanded. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. We read, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Imagine that. They're not just coming for the folks at 2301 Crown Center Drive. They're not just going out to our headquarters. They're coming into your home. They're coming to drag your wife for the thing that was said in the marketplace to the person behind the counter. They're coming to grab your teenagers out of your home. Verse 4, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Went everywhere preaching the word. It did not stop them. Because they recognized that what began on Pentecost 31 AD involved them all. And I'm reminded of, of a tale we'll wrap up with right here at the conclusion of the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
of all things. We don't believe the doctrines of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're wrong about the identity of Christ and who and what he is. They're wrong about any number of things. Uh, definitely not a part of the true church of God. But even God sometimes looks at the example of Gentiles and what they're capable of. Of doing and their devotion, and there was a tale that came out of uh, World War II. A lot of people don't realize that Jehovah's Witnesses were rounded up just like the Jews were in World War II in Europe. They didn't have a star on their clothing. They had, I think it was an upside down purple triangle to identify, say, not a Jew, but a Jehovah's Witness. Now, they, though their message is not the true gospel, they do feel very passionately about it. And so they were rounded up and put in concentration camps. The one exception, which I find amazing, is they were allowed to leave. The only thing they had to do individually to leave a concentration camp was sign a piece of paper saying they renounce all of their beliefs. But if they were unwilling to sign that, they stayed and they endured. And there's a tale of Nazis uh, discovering something has been going on. And you think, well, are they digging a tunnel? Are they getting out? Are they escaping? Right? So they go to this room where some, some shenanigans have been going on and they kick down the door and what they find in there inside a concentration camp is a group of Jehovah's Witnesses that had smuggled in over time pieces of essentially a, a mimeograph machine so that from the concentration camp they could keep producing their literature and distribute it. And the Nazis asked in stunned disbelief, I can't do it in German, but they said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like they can't understand. They expect to see a tunnel where they've gone under the wall. They expect to see they're, they're gathering weapons and fortifications and no, they're churning out materials. And they explain to their Nazi captors, you don't understand. We have to do this. We have to do this. And though spiritual Gentiles, if you will, I do have to ask, would God find that kind of faith and devotion today? If we long to be the church that was founded on Pentecost 31 AD, he will. Are we the church of that Pentecost? In one way or another, we are their descendants. Their DNA is in us, right? Their blood, if you will, the Holy Spirit runs in us and it connects us to them from 2,000 years ago. But whether we'll actually be that church is not a matter of happenstance. It's a matter of choice. Let us not dishonor the name we bear. Let us not fail to be that church. Let all of us turn the world upside down.